welcome back to a new episode of Mastering Agility, a podcast series with and for inspiring agilists, bringing you the best of the business. This podcast series is brought to you by agilitymasters.com, providing you with all the agile coaches and scrum masters you need. And if you go to the website now and subscribe to the newsletter, you'll be updated with all the latest information when it gets to this podcast. My name is Sander Deer, and I'm practicing Scrum from the trenches myself. And on today's show, we're having Gunter Verheyen about humanizing the workspace. Humanizing the workspace is a term that he's been talking about for quite a while now. But why humanizing the workspace again? Aren't we all working as humans in there? Let's see what his perspective is. Welcome Gunter Verheyen. How are you? I'm I'm fine, uh, Sander. Um, even even more because you've invited me to your uh, great podcast. I'm uh, really honored to be here. So thank you. I think I'm the honored one to having a person like you as a guest. Um, from before kicking it off, really, um, what do you understand um, when I say the word or the coin the term humanizing the workspace? Uh, for me, it's something I've discovered as sort of the core theme that drives me in my work. So even from a long time ago, even, even before my, uh, let's say, my career, whatever you want to call it, in Scrum, which started in 2003, even before that, uh, even, even when I graduated a long time ago, it was 1992, at some point in life, looking back, I realized for me it's all about people. In that sense, human beings. And I've always tried to get some sense of respect for the fact that we're human beings in whatever I've done. But, you know, sometimes you have to grow a little bit older to actually realize that. And even even more old to put a phrase on that. So back in 2016, when I... Uh, I uh, stopped my exclusive partnership with Ken Schreber and asked him to talk. And I, I sort of went out there again into the, into the big wild world. Um, I, I called myself an independent scrum caretaker. And, and that was something that popped up in my head intuitively, caretaker, because it's a scrum caretaker. It represents for me not just caring for scrum, but caretaker means for me also caring for people and the people aspect. And I've discovered that what drives me is, is humanizing the workplace, actually. It's uh, 17 years of Scrum, and then you start realizing, in a way, what, what really drives you. Um, just, again, the, the proof, the evidence that I'm a slow thinker. Yeah, you or the world, because if you could, you mentioned this is from something that you noticed back in 92, um, and apparently this is becoming a hot topic now, so it has taken uh, roughly 30 years to really get in, in, in it, in the industry. What makes it so hard for something so elemental to, to be, get uh, to the actual practice of companies? Yeah, isn't, isn't that strange? Um, it's, it's something that you just said reminded me of something. Often, you know, I do a lot of scrum classes and workshops and so on and, and uh, some consulting, a little bit less now with all of the COVID thing. Um, but often people look at Scrum and they sort of surprise, say, yeah, but you know what? This is plainly common sense. And, and I'm like, 
on the one hand, yes, absolutely. But on the other hand, if this is common sense, why are we then not just doing it? So that's why I explain my classes often as sort of restoring the common to the sense. And, and you could say the same, the same from this. Although, again, it sort of has to do a little bit with, I think, the past and the history of our industry connected to a little bit of the history of Scrum. Because as you know, Sander, um, last year, by the end of last year, 2020, Scrum turned 25. So Scrum officially was for the first time presented to the public in 1995. And, and by then, 1995, the software industry was a very, very, very different place than it is today. It was full of waterfalls, sequential ways of working, um, large phases, and so on. So, so Scrum was a very dark, obscure thing by then. It only got through after the Agile Manifesto, 2001, and then started growing. And it was actually not before 2005, 2006. And I, I've been fortunate to be part of that, that we saw Scrum and Agile being even accepted words and, and accepted ways of working. But you know what? That was 10 years after, after the establishing the first official public presentation of Scrum. And, and, and Scrum was often implemented in IT situations as a new IT process, the new delivery process, and so on. And, and the process aspect of Scrum, that's what I call sort of the cold thing, that is fairly, I say between quotes, fairly easy, because we know Scrum simple, not easy. That is fairly easy. It is totally not easy, but it's fairly easy compared to what I call the warm aspect of Scrum, the people aspect. So what has happened in those first 20, 25 years of Scrum, I believe we've achieved a lot. We've done great things with Scrum, but I believe we're too much still stuck on two aspects of Scrum, meaning process and, and in a way product. So we've moved away from fixed price projects. We, we went to a product-oriented approach. We, got the, we, we moved away from hyper-specialization, silos, and so on. We've got the idea of cross-functional collaboration uh, through at the development level, but even between sort of traditional business and the IT, often try a product on the role and so on. So we've achieved a lot. But I feel we're still overly focused on, can I call that sort of the, the technicality of Scrum, the process. The meetings, which we obviously call events, we're not even truly seeing as, op as opportunities to inspect and adapt, but still, it's something, it's, it's very, very tangible. You can implement that. You can ask people to organize their work in sprints. You can ask them to do a sprint planning that shouldn't take longer than the, uh, whatever. So that is sort of more the cold aspect of Scrum. And it, it's, it's one aspect of what I call Scrum's DNA, because for me, Scrum's DNA so underlying the events, the artifacts, and so on, even even values uh, and so on, are, are two main, let's say, management principles, and that's what I call empiricism and self-organization. Now, process has a lot to do with empiricism. And one of the additional achievements of Scrum for me is that we have uh, not only um, removed that whole waterfall thinking and waterfall culture, that industrial thinking, the industrial paradigm, but we've we've gotten we've replaced it with iterative incremental thinking, sort of short cycles, which is empiricism that will help us inspect and adapt. That's huge. But the second aspect of Scrum's DNA is self-organization, which is already based upon the old paper, the new new product development game. Remember, 1986. It, it's already got there. It, it describes the role of management. 
in 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 a self-organizing system with teams and and uh, cross-functionally organized teams. It describes the role of management as managing from the outset, not intervening on a daily basis, but providing support, inspiration, potential goals, and and sort of managing via boundaries. But self-organization is so important. It's crucial. You can't disconnect self-organization from empiricism. But still, empiricism called fairly easy with regards to the people aspect, which I express as self-organization. And and I, I, I truly hope that we can, as from now on, given all the things we've achieved with, let's say, those two aspects, process and then, then product and, and potentially valuable products even, we can, we can start focusing and emphasizing the people aspect even more. And I believe we really have to, uh, not just because there's an urgency and, and there's a need, but because I believe it's also the good thing to do. And, and it's just, just in our conversation, thinking back of when I graduated back in 1992, so I graduated as an industrial engineer in electronics. So my specialization was hardware electronics combined with software and so on, um, assembler, microassembler, even. In, and I, I've learned my, I, I taught myself C and, and C in those days. And I remember as an industrial engineer uh, graduating and then going to look for a job, I was convinced that I was going to be something like team leader, line manager, whatever, I thought engineer and so on. And then, and then much to my surprise, I found out that an industrial engineer is mostly seen as a very technical person doing stuff, programming stuff, and in, in, in my case, also working with, with printed circuit boards and so on. And that was sort of a huge disappointment. And it, took me a while, it took me a while to get over that. And I've been to that disappointment a couple of times. Finally, every time again, always recognize for myself, Oh my God, I've got this huge interest in people, working with people. I like to help people. I like to, I like to help people develop themselves. I remember in 2007, one of my uh, closer collaborators, but I've been doing Scrum and Agile and Screen Programming for four years then. And, and he, he, he brought it up with me. He said, Gunter, do you know why I like working with you? I said, I have no idea, and I can't even imagine people liking to work with me. But he said, Gunther, I like working with you because you've got this sort of 360-degree thing. You will not let go. You will not rest. You will not sleep, whatever, which is not always a good thing, until you've got sort of everybody and every aspect sort of satisfied, meaning you want happy customers, you want good projects, you want to keep your, your work uh, under control, you want it to be financially viable, you want your stakeholders to be happy, but you also want your teams to be really happy and engaged. And, and I was sort of, and I, yeah, and I sort of, yeah, that's true. It also gets me into troubles a lot, but that people aspect. So I, I truly hope that, that imagine in 20, 25 years, Sander, if we're still around, you and I, we can we can speak to each other again and and share the same idea of accomplishment, not in the product and the process aspect of Scrum, but hopefully in the people aspect of Scrum, because the need is high, not not just um, let's say uh, performance wise, because but I'm truly convinced that engaged people will perform better, they will do better work, they care about quality, they care about satisfaction and so on. In, that, that's essential in engagement, which is sort of a reflection of intrinsic motivation. 
But it seems uh, over the past two years, I've been talking about the topic, topic a lot. And one of the things that really helped me was a research by a, by a, by a group in, uh, in, the, in the US and doing regular research about engagement of people. And I was so surprised, negatively surprised, that it, engagement across the world is really, really low. So they've, they've been doing a service around the world asking for people and, and let's say sort of on average across the world, engagement of people, meaning people inspired by the company, energized by the company, liking to come to work, not minding to come to work, really going the extra mile now and then. The engagement of people across the world is between 15 and 30%. So that means about 70 up to 85% of the workforce in general is not engaged Probably a lot of them couldn't care less attitude or often, which expresses often in sort of nine to five mentality. But there's even a lot of people that are uh, actively disengaged, meaning, meaning working against the company, working against your colleagues. Just to say that you can name a lot of aspects of where Scrum and Agile can bring improvement. I don't think we'll find a lot of aspects that have like up to 70, 85% room for improvement. So first of all, it is needed for the health and the well-being of our organizations, for our consumers also, for stakeholders, but also let's not forget for the people doing the work themselves. Imagine, imagine we could uplift the average level of engagement in organization from 20, 25% to 30%, 40%, maybe even 50%. That, that I may be dreaming, but that's so important. And, and I believe that with Scrum, we've got a sort of tool. We can, we can use Scrum to create a context based upon inspection adaptation combined with self-organization that brings out the best in people. And that would help people find intrinsic motivation again. And it's, it's so easy, it's an easy factor to overlook, right? Because um, Scrum, like you mentioned, brings kind of a tangible framework to think about things and, and to implement stuff. And if, if you think about the Scrum values, these kind of things become very apparent. But, but if I look back at my own past, having a burnout, which was kind of coined by never thinking about where my energy actually comes from and ultimately mm -hmm. being in a game... Uh, for all the wrong reasons, uh, seeing people with money and status right. and cool cars and these kind of things, which uh, obviously I, I figured uh, that's probably going to look good in me as well. So that's something that I'm going to strive for. Um, backfired totally. Um, but it also made the whole process of recovering also um, made it very transparent to me. Um, I had never been thinking about where my energy comes from. And no one actually hmm. told me to think about what do you like? Do something that you like. And I have no clue anymore who was the genius that told me or gave me the advice to um, to get a job that you really like that brings you energy because you work about 30% yep. of your life. And if it doesn't yep. bring you any energy, you're just wasting a third of your life um, on something that you don't like. Um, yep. Where do you and, that, and that is a really sad fact. It All is, those yeah. people out there not engaged, negatively engaged or disengaged, uh, going to work, spending their so much time of their life, which means that so much time of their life is actually wasted. 
And that is that is that is truly saddening. Yeah. Do you feel that might this might be a personal um, personal question? But do you feel that you're in a place that you are now because you're a popular guy because you chase things or you do things that you actually like to do? Um, it's 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 a it's a continuous struggle. I, I'd, I'd like to first capitalize on something you said. You've you've gone through a phase, ending up in a burnout and so on, sort of a insightful lesson in the end. Luckily, it didn't Definitely. it didn't it didn't it didn't break you in that sense. You recovered, which is good. Uh, not everybody has that. I've, I've, it reminds me of a situation. I just told told you told about that situation in two thousand and seven. When a guy told me why he liked working with me, which was a, it was sort of enlightening for me because it's good to hear that from somebody else. And then discovered this a lot of truth in what he says. Nevertheless, in in the years following that, 2008, 2009, I was also not. I wouldn't say yeah. Let, let me call it just blinded also by by management ambitions, like you just said. I was I was sort of um, I, I I easily get bored. When things become common and sort of daily practice, I get bored. And so I, I always left companies quite fairly quickly up to the point that my wife said at some point in time, 2001, no, please going to go, go look for a job where you have a lot of variety and diversity within the same context, hopefully, rather than changing jobs every two to three years. Sounds like so a wise I, woman. Yeah, what she is. Uh, so, and I spent a company. That's how I ended up in consulting. By the way, I spent uh, time in consulting from 2001 until 2007 with the same company. But again, in 2007, slightly got bored again as well. And my view promises not being kept, and so on. So I left. Really, not really a clue what I, what I wanted to do. There was another consultant that a consulting uh, company that approached me with sort of management promises, and I really felt, yeah, let's 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 go for this. We got a certain age. I think I think I can do this, and I had to find find out the hard way that it isn't my thing at all. I believed it would be, but it, in the end, I found out it wasn't, and and. So after a year, one year and a half, I, I, I just completely went back to Scrum because I felt that is what drives me, it also gives me energy. And then, then started uh, making my Scrum my focus again, completely again. And, and that was sort of enlightening too. Luckily, I, I, I didn't end up in a, in, a, in a burnout situation or any other, other sort of break breakdown thing. But I, I, I believe I've been quite close, actually. Um, so that was that was fascinating too, a fascinating experience. Yeah, so it, we learned from life. It it, it kind of got you on the path of doing things that you really like that that gives you energy. Yeah, and that was a way to sort of rediscover Scrum in a way. That's what happens is if you do this long enough, seventy years, and and uh, I kept kept going for it. But I've got I've got this people fascination. I don't know where it comes from, but. I like it, and and I hope more people get it. And I I really believe it's Scrum. It's it's one thing that we can do. I believe from what what again in simple terms, what we need from management leadership is also to see the beauty of Scrum, and 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 focus on that people aspect. And I I do know a lot of even CXO people, middle management people, whatever, they have this intrinsic interest in the well-being of their people. But this this strange thing, as people climb 
the ladder, make a career, for some reason they, they tend to leave that, that, that intrinsic interest they have, they tend to leave that behind. Because maybe it's it's because there's pressure. We need to be brave. We need to be firm. We can't give in. No vulnerability allowed anymore. No emotions. You have to be the big, strong manager, whatever. But if I talk to even CXO teams and I talk about those aspects and I just, um, I, 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 I sort of put myself at their level, sort of as, as a peer, because as, as a fellow human being, I do notice that a lot of them have an interest in people. But they, they, they don't know how to deal with it, really. And, and so, in, again, in simple terms, the shift, I believe, that we're looking from is from stop managing individuals and start managing the environment. And that was already in the new, new product development game, managed from the outset, managed via the boundaries of Scrum, not on individual performance, not via tasks, whatever. It sounds so simple, and it sounds common sense, certainly in a complex environment with lots of changes, uh, huge levels of unpredictability, many uncertainties. It sounds so obvious, but I think I think what I call in, in, in my book the, the half time, so the time it takes for something to to um, for its value or it's from radiation, right? To to be cut in half, the half time of a lot of that thinking seems to be substantial. It's going to take a while before we replace that mindset or that organizational culture. But I truly believe in it. There are multiple angles or multiple topics that that are in things that you just mentioned. For instance, management, middle management, climbing the ladder and and losing their ability or, yeah, not necessarily the desire, but the ability to still be in contact with developing people and, and focusing on people. Um, it might be un- unconsciously, by the way. It's not that they make a choice to leave that behind, but it seems to happen. Yeah, yeah Christian Clay, he has um, a very interesting theory about this. It's kind of out of the scope of this this podcast, but might be something to look into as well. Um, mm-hmm. Having that said, do you feel that it might be due to a lack of special or, or specific focus in the Scrum Guide, for instance, Um of what management and leadership is supposed to do. Because if you look at how organizations treat Scrum as sort of a silver bullet that is supposed to fix all their problems, um, which shocker is not going to work if you treat it like that. But because the roles and the accountabilities, as they're called now, are so crisp and so clean described in those 13 pages, um, while leadership and what they're supposed to do is kind of left out, uh, it becomes a struggle to do, especially because Scrum Masters are expected by organizations to coach and, and teach a team. Um, and then neglecting the fact that a Scrum Master is also supposed to coach and develop the organization around it. And therefore, yep. management might be left out. Or might feel left out, yeah. Uh, well, there's a couple of aspects to that. What I... Think is good. So, 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 twenty thirteen until twenty sixteen, I, I, I actively partnered with Ken. So, I had uh, fascinating conversations by then, and 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 I remember us discussing things like um, less large scale Scrum, and in those days, also Safos popping up, and a lot of things, and 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 we made a conscious decision to um, keep the Scrum guide simple and and essential. In that sense, 
The idea is still, and, and that might be a little bit naive, I'll come back on that. The idea is to describe how Scrum works and how to organize work in sprints, sort of the real essence. And I think we're already moving away from that a little bit, by the way, by adding stuff again, by the sort of my, my, my point of view. Um, but just describe how a sprint works and, and how you use that and for what purpose you use that and so on. Let's leave that open. Yeah, because there's this idea in other frameworks that say that you have to go through um, organizational redesign exercises first before you can apply certain stuff and so on. And, and the idea, and, and Ken and I strongly agreed on that, to not go there, not include in the definition of Scrum what should happen beyond outside Scrum. And, and that's where the naivety uh, comes into play because we believe that by doing Scrum, dysfunctions, dysfunctional situations, problems, uh, mistakes, anything will become transparent. And that if you would truly embrace Scrum and the underlying principles, you wouldn't use that to blame, but as reasons to improve. So that means that by doing Scrum, you would encounter, uh, you would might want to help managers reinvent themselves. And structures around Scrum, rethink them. How you deal with other processes, governance, procedures, bureaucracy, whatever, even up to the level of maybe the financial department and how to, how to, how to deal with HR procedures and so on. Now that you're doing Scrum, sprints, inspection, adaptation, team focus, self-organization and so on. But it's again that halftime is, is maybe it's bigger than we expected. But I still think it's good that in the definition of Scrum, we don't describe how an organization should look like and what should change within an organization. Only already because of the, the simple finding that Scrum is being used and applied in so many organizations, in so many industries, in so many businesses, in so many domains, that you can't describe that because it would be different everywhere else. So that, that's, that's a bit of a practical consideration in not doing that. I also truly believe in the, the principal idea to not do that. On the other hand, what you just said, remind me a little bit, it maybe those phrases like from the new, new product development game describing the role of management as, they, they described it as, as, a, uh, as, as risk and capital, whatever investors don't like that uh, too much. It's quite aggressive, but as an investor in general, somebody investing in a team and in a product development and this that, that, that would be that would be a minimal minimal yet already sufficient addition to the scrum guide now that make me think of it because it would highlight how how the involvement of management or leadership whatever you want to call it in scrum would be yeah yeah uh, that might be might be good. Maybe you should launch the idea. But that's good. But, but yeah, but because in all my talk about uh, engagement and, and humanizing the workplace, I've been pulling up those quotes from the new product development regularly. And it's from 1986. And imagine how long it is already, how long ago that was already. Yeah, that was an interesting discussion that I had with Dave West about that as well. He had some interesting remarks. Um, but other than that, you coined or you mentioned HR and that kind of triggered me to something else. If you want to discuss and, and humanize the workplace, human resources kind of already triggers me into 
how people and, and specifically management, to be honest, and I don't want to demonize management, but that's, that's the practice I see often is that management is calling people resources. Now, this kind of infuriates me already because this is a resource, right? It feels some, like something that you can pick up and that you can move and just do whatever you want with it. Now, here I have a case with you that I would like to have your opinion on. I'm really curious about that. Um, something that I've been seeing a couple of times is that we have a scrum team, right? And the scrum team is supposed to be self-managing and ideally they are accountable for their own hiring process and people that come into the team because it affects their dynamics, the way that they work together, and it affects everything um, about the core um, purpose of Scrum is to, how to deliver value. Yep. Now, and then this middle manager comes in and he says to a specific team member, hey, you're out. Without consulting anything, anyone from the team, without discussing something with the product owner or with the scrum mass. You just say, either you go to a different team or you're out. Um, whatever the or reason the, is. Or the product owner is replaced or the senior developer now have to also work in another team on another project or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Outside of the fact of what the accountability should be, how do you feel about a scenario like this uh, from a human perspective? Exactly the same as you feel. So, so in in all of that rethinking of structures and processes and whatever beyond Scrum, in a way, um, it probably would have to start by renaming HR anyhow, because like you just said, humans are not resources, and we shouldn't consider them as resources. Uh, sometimes people try to play smart and they say, "Yeah, but the, the people are our assets," and that just brings the same feeling with me. People are not assets. People are just that. People, end of discussion. I've also got in my book, people are people, not robots, not uh, replaceable pieces of machinery. Uh, you can't clothe them and so on. Every, every single person is unique, which is great because it adds to the complexity of our work because our work is already so complex and just the fact that we do it with people is, is making it even more complex, which is beautiful. Um, so I, I, I've been through an experience working with a large organization um, it was before until the COVID crisis. And uh, I think they had about 100 teams in total in place. They had like 45 HL coaches running around. And, and I was there, never called myself an HL coach, but says this scrum, scrum guy. Um, I had the, had the luck of working with about 15 of those teams. Yeah, on and off I do. I, I like to do provide my services, my help on a sort of on-demand basis. Rather than push myself onto people, I, I like people to almost ask for help or ask for my insights. And that was working really well. And from those 15 people in a really sort of uh, uh, very difficult, sometimes even toxic environment, honestly, uh, from those 15 teams, still four or five of them became what I call highly collaborative. I don't like high performance teams or high performing teams, whatever you want to call it. Um, performance is, is, is a sort of emergent property that, that uh, comes from collaboration. If you have highly collaborative teams, you will have performance. So I like highly collaborative teams. And it was like four, four or five of them. Every single one of them, Sander, plummeted again. Because we reached some sort of level of self-organization, which, which, which I like to call self-management, meaning they were able to work their organize their work in sprints, 
um, find a way to really collaborate and not be disturbed by external powers and external authorities and whatever in their sprints. Yeah. Um, but every single one of those four to five teams plummeted again. Their motivation went down again. Why? Exactly because what you just described. The product was replaced. This person was replaced without consulting, without asking, without mining team dynamics, without thinking about consistency, without thinking about the people aspect of those people gelling, getting to know each other, building some stronger connection, which was more than just a professional connection. They all went down again. That's why I say in that idea of self-organization as which is already in the new product development game. You know, the funny thing is the term self-organization itself as a noun does not exist in English. The verb exists to self-organize, but self-organization as, as a term does not exist in a way. And, and what for me is lovely about that is that we have to give it meaning. And for me, the minimal meaning of self-organization in Scrum means and I've been calling that for several years now, I've been calling that what you just used, the term self-management, meaning a scrum team manages itself throughout the spin, meaning they select their own work, they decide who should be working on what, they think about value, and they show their work with some openness by the end of every sprint in order to learn from it, catch the feedback, and so on. That is at least a form of, of self-organization that I call self-management. And then... And then um, because you just said that they should ideally also be, I, I call that additionally in a way, because self-management is a first minimal expression for me of self-organization. Um, if beyond that is the following, if people are capable and creative and have the insights to manage their own work, organize, self-organize, organize their own work within the boundaries of Scrum, against the expectation of, of uh, delivering value, showing value by the end of every sprint and learning from that. And, and, and in that sense, growing new relationships amongst themselves and with their stakeholders, their user base and so on, and the rest of the organization. If people can do that, they can also, also decide who should be in the team, what skills do we need, what sort of expertise, um, where do we need more expertise? Where do we need less expertise? Can we do some sort of uh, cross-fertilization, meaning keeping the team as it is and then learning new tricks and, and, and skills from each other, new expertise, building new expertise? Do we need to uh, add expertise to the team, hire expertise? Or maybe at some point in time, sort of the, 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 the less beautiful side, maybe say goodbye to somebody of the team for whatever reason. So, And that's what I call self-designing. That means if, if teams can organize their own works within, within work within a sprint, they can also decide who should be on the team, who should not be on the team. And, and then the role of HR, besides renaming themselves to something else, becomes to facilitate the team in that via the Scrum Master, with the help of the Scrum Master, help, help them with insights on how that works as well, maybe do the formalities, maybe the administration bureaucracy. But the final decision should be in the team. And that means in the team for hiring additional people. Who do you want? We have a, maybe we have a bunch of candidates. Who, who, who are we going to work with? Should be a team decision. But also what you just described. Um, we want team stability. Not just, again, from a sort of productivity perspective. How much work can you get done? Because you know that context switching is, is detrimental to, uh, to those types of situations. But also... For, because of the respect for people, the engagement of people, 
I've seen engagement of those four to five teams go down the drain again because of those um, interventions by uh, by external people, the PMO, the department head, the manager, the whatever the IT managers. Yeah. So so yeah. So self management is 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 only the start, and I want I, I hope that people see that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe people facilitation would be a good new name for HR. Other than that, you've now mentioned a couple of topics like self-designing, self-managing, these kind of things. And you also mentioned engagement is the key. Another key that I feel personally is communication. And and um, if you would mention these, these topics that you just mentioned in these terms, um, people would have different kind of assumptions how of how this looks like um but what i really like about the book of stephanie arkerman and simon randall mastering um or professional scrum master um mastering professional scrum yeah where they describe self-organization because it was still called self-organization back then instead of self-management is that you need um kind of three pillars if you will clear responsibilities boundaries and common goals now, if you already discuss these three as an organization when implementing Scrum or any any other framework, then you would be so much further than just saying, hey, now we're doing Scrum, good luck. How often have you ever seen, because my, my personal experience is, is that this has never been discussed. How often have you ever seen that there is a clear discussion about what we see or define as self-management? Yeah. Um, not not too often. Uh, what I've what I've mainly seen in organizations uh, having sometimes to go back to management and leadership is to um, remind them of the effect of of deadlines still and and other aspects and intervening those things. So it it is a, it's a difficult one. Certainly in large organizations, but even in not so large organizations. So I've also worked with small and medium organizations. And every time I, 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 I go there with some hopes and expectations and dreams that, yeah, smaller organizations, they're going to be sort of naturally agile. And that seems to be not true. This, this idea of processes, governance, heavy things has, has, has been introduced in our world so deeply, it's going to take a while before we get rid of it. Um, but it also ties into the whole age of transformation stuff that a lot of organizations go through. And, and a lot of those things are, seem to be built on the idea, first of all, that uh, our people can't be trusted. But to go back to my common theme again, Horrible. that's one aspect. But yeah, but the other aspect is also, you know, agile, uh, scrum, whatever, that's for the teams. And they forget that um, you can't properly adopt Scrum without rethinking the structures around Scrum. So I say sort so of what I call agile premises to an organizational transformation is first of all that people are naturally agile. People have the intrinsic ability to adapt, to capitalize on new insights in a way to not stick to the plan once it doesn't make sense anymore to stick to the plan. People have that because we do that in our personal lives all the time. But it seems in our professional environments, we're not able to, to build on that. So and for me, Scrum is a process that is the next sort of 
premise to uh, to transformations is people are naturally agile and next to that, whatever you do with process framework, in my case, that would be Scrum. Scrum for me builds on that natural ability of people to self-organize, to adapt. We don't have to tell people that they're able to do that. We don't have to instruct them how to do that. That's not self-organization. People can do that. Scrum just creates a frame around that because to give it a minimal lightweight structure, to give it focus, to give it direction, which is probably very important in a professional organization, right? So Scrum does that. But beyond that, um, structure should follow such process. So people are naturally agile process, whatever process you have follows that ability. And whatever structures you have should follow and build on that process, which in turn follows the natural ability of people to be agile. And that, and that is where a lot of companies uh, sort of miss the point because they introduce scrum teams within existing structures, under existing governance, in existing departments, which are often silos, which often leads to just a simple finding that um, you've got sort of micro teams and they're building maybe parts of a system, sub parts of a system, sub-modules, whatever, but nobody's minding the overall end-to-end value production or value delivery at the level of often the product or the service. Because you've got all those micro teams in, de- in, in departmental structure, meaning in silos, and, and nobody's minding what I call the synergy across those teams, which is often the fact that in the end, they all work on the same product. So you now have micro teams throwing work over the wall to another team over the wall to another team, and they have to build on that, and they have to add a system component to that, and so on. In the end, there's some sort of overall product, but it's not really a product owner at that level, and nobody's minding the improvement from capitalizing on those synergies because they're stuck in silos and departments. And and that, that's where a lot of things, things uh, go wrong because in the end, organizations ask themselves, so we're now doing Scrum. Where's all the improvement in terms of time to market or quality or whatever? Well, take a step back, look at Scrum and organize your Scrum to optimally serve your product or your service. But that means starting by identifying what the product and the service is that you want to deliver with Scrum. And that's what a lot of organizations uh, not do. So they stick away from changing structures. That's the safest thing to do. Not changing the structures, but it doesn't make much sense. You've got instead of you get all those um, individuals running around like sort of headless chickens, you've got now in a way a lot of micro teams running around still like headless chickens, not being connected, not overall, not not an overall purpose, which might be the product and its its consumers. It seems so, uh, to me that uh, indeed Scrum is being slapped on in in name only, and then then you're good to go. That that's. That's the way that seems to work. Now, we're nearing the end of this episode. If you have one advice or maybe even your hopes and dreams for the future, what would it be? Well, you know what? Um, Because what you just said was our naivety. We just described how Scrum works and the rest will flow from that. Problems will show up and so on. Um, I I truly hope that we start focusing on people and and start focusing on people so much in the following sense. So think about what it means to create or deliver or increase value. It means you have to think about what does value mean? Because value has no universal definition. 
So, um, and, and value is for your users, your consumers, value is for your organization, your enterprise, for its stakeholders. Value should also be for the teams, for the people doing that. And that should be expressed in a sort of increase of engagement. And, and as, as research shows that engaged teams care more so that they care about profits, benefits, financial aspects, customer satisfaction, market share, and so on. So, so my challenge for uh, organizations and, and anybody out there is to ask from now on, please keep measuring customer satisfaction, keep measuring financial aspects and so on, but don't focus on them. Focus on engagement of your people, checking with people regularly, at the retrospective, find the scrub answers, help them develop themselves, rethink your procedures to, to help people development, get rid of performance reviews and so on. Create an environment that invites people to engage again. And as a gift, you will get higher value for your users. You will get higher value for the organization. So focus on engagement completely. But keep measuring all of it, but focus on engagement. Amazing advice, Gunther. Now, I would like to thank you, Gunther, and our listeners for joining us today. If you want to know more, just check out Agility Masters or find Gunther on LinkedIn or find myself on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to contact either of us if, if you have any specific questions or you want to uh, share some feedback or whatever. Feel free to reach out. Thank you again, Gunther. Thank you, Sander, for having me.